this is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, a post-mortem on the young, restless, reformed. I am your host, Matt, joined by Pastor Michael. We are broadcasting from the dead of winsome winter when everyone's kids get sick and life carries on slowly. How are you doing today, Pastor Michael? Oh, well, it is it is cold because of winter, but it is also quite delightfully warm because of the winsomeness in the air right now. Um, doing well, like you said, there's definitely sicknesses going around. So it's just that time. We will, uh, we will proceed. Restless is still here. We're still restless as always. We're still ready to go. And we've got uh, just the, the never ending content bandwagon that we can jump on, which is the rise and fall of Mars Hill. The rise and fall of Mars Hill. Listeners, like many of you who have discovered us looking for reactions to this podcast, we're here for you. We're here for you again this is today. What we, this is what we do. We do more than just this. And also, for the record, I, I don't know if we've said this the last couple of episodes we did on the Mars Hill podcast at Christian Today, but we are the original rise and fall of New Calvinism podcast. Um, we are the original uh, Mark Driscoll reaction and trying to grapple with what's come before podcast that makes no sense. But uh, we, I mean, we, we were here first, so we have no problem listening to this, using it to boost our own show because right. we uh, don't have the money that Christianity today right. does. You know, we, and, and while that lawsuit is pending against Christianity <laughs> today, we'll have to keep just reacting to their show. And so that's right. That's the, right. We, we can't have better health come on and we can't have uh, what are some of the other brands they've been advertising. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ads, what a wild thing. Let me give one actual thing you can do to help the show. So those of you who listen to podcasts on Spotify, because you are Joe Rogan conspiracy theorists, you can go ahead on Spotify and give our show five stars. So they just introduced this feature recently and go and give us five stars. We could conceivably climb the charts in Christianity on Spotify simply because very few podcasts have ratings. And so everyone go on to Spotify right now, this episode, Don't do anything else. Go right now. Five stars. I'd love to see us get uh, 50 of those and just, and see what happens on our Spotify. In rankings. fact, I have not done it and I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to do it right now as we're talking, Matt. So and you I, should too, everybody. And I'm going to introduce this episode of the rise and fall of Mars Hill while Pastor Michael does it. As Pastor Michael said, we do this. It is certainly a way a lot of people find us, which we appreciate. But we do this because this uh, piece of media is not uh, is not just flat journalism. It is not without an agenda. And so we know lots of people are listening to it. And we believe you need to listen to this with discernment. They're trying to teach us things about the Christian church, what we should do, what was wrong and what needs to be done to fix it. And so Pastor Michael, he, like many of you, he has listened to the whole show. He knows about whatever's going to happen in that two and a half hour finale. I am listening to these episode by episode reacting live with you as you heard these for the first time. And so this week we are going to pull some clips from an episode that I did not appreciate a whole lot. And I can explain why as time <laughs> goes on. And it is the episode State of Emergency. And so this is the episode that kind of goes behind the scenes as to the elders that were fired. As we know, you can fire an elder. Um, how all of the uh, political, bureaucratic, church polity, church government things that went into behind that. And so it is called the State of Emergency. And so before we begin, I'm going to just share what I think kind of the thesis of this episode was. I think the thesis of this episode is that Mars Hill did not start as a one-man show, but move that way in practice for the sake of efficiency of reaching people with the gospel, and then became a way to consolidate power under Mark and those who supported him. Pastor Michael, do you think that's a fair way to, to characterize how they kind of saw this all unfolding over the years at, at Mars Hill that they try and cover in this episode? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and we'll get into it. I mean, this is a great episode to understand. Number one, why, you know, ecclesiology matters. Uh, and uh, number two, why we love Presbyterianism. <laughs> so, That's right. That's uh, there, right. There are benefits. And so, uh, so it'll be great to, to jump into some of this. So Pastor Michael's job is going to be uh, to be a shameless promoter of Presbyterian polity, and I will do my best to rein it in. We are going to try and do six, maybe seven clips, only because I actually think there's more. There's plenty more we could react to. If there's a part of this you'd like us to talk about, where what we we are willing to, uh, as we skip certain parts, I'm going to explain why we don't and why I actually found parts of it uh, actually less helpful to hear than have left unheard. And so we want to start with the podcast where it often does. It starts with a great clip from Mark Driscoll. So this starts with a clip from his sermon series in Nehemiah, his sermon series in Nehemiah, which I listened to and greatly appreciated back in the day. Um, This is considered a, was a controversial clip they played because it's immediately after this, he has his confrontation with these elders, he's going to throw off the bus. So let's listen to this clip and see what we think about it. Mark Driscoll is preparing to preach the final sermon in a series on the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Uh, Tonight is a great text. Uh, A guy beats up some members of his church, scalps one. Uh, It it really, I mean, it's just heartwarming is really what comes to mind. The subtitle of the series was Building a City Within the City, and they'd been in the book since February, almost eight months. The congregation was meant to take the whole thing as a spiritual metaphor for what Mars Hill was going to look like in Seattle. And the way Driscoll portrayed it throughout the series is that he was cast in the role of Nehemiah, sent by God to the city to bring about reform and restoration. In the final verses of the book, the prophet rebukes the men of Jerusalem for intermarrying with foreign wives, especially the priests. He punishes them, drives a bunch of them out, and the story ends with Nehemiah asking God to be remembered for making the priesthood pure again. So, in casting himself as Nehemiah in these sermons, it's easy for Driscoll to begin to air some of his own frustrations about the work of Mars Hill. Then I confronted them and I cursed them. He's just cussing guys out and beat some of them. I'll read that again. And beat some of them. Now he's an older guy and he's beating up members of his church. What do we do with that? I'll tell you what I'd like to do with that. I'd like to follow in his example. There's a few guys right now that if I wasn't going to end up on CNN, I would go Old Testament on them, even in leadership in this church. If you've been immersed in Driscoll's world for a while, even if you've just been immersed in this podcast, then these comments are just one more example of Mark presenting himself as a brawler at heart. One more example of a violent ethos that he wanted to project. Even so, there's something unsettling to me in the laughter. Pastor Michael... Were you unsettled by the laughter? Uh, no, I mean this is this is just run of the mill at this point. I know that they're trying to make it uh, extra dark and extra like scary uh, because they're setting up the rest of this episode, right? They're setting up the fact that this is the kind of you know uh, uh, bravado that somebody like Driscoll used, especially when he began to take more power and he began to assume to himself power that he shouldn't have had and and start to wield that kind of soul authority um, as this kind of, you know, egomaniac. And so they're trying to make it sound like extra bad, but the, I mean, the laughter, they laugh at everything Driscoll said, just like we did. I mean, it was because it, it was kind of funny, right? I mean, it's, it's a little bit uh, uh, funny to try to uh, talk about Nehemiah in this way. And it's quite obviously a joke. I know yep. that the, the context they're laying it in is that he is going to, take this authority and he's going to take some men to the woodshed, even following the sermon and that that must be his point. I think that given that he preached these sermons 10 times and they were all identical, right? Like right when we do the, you can't have the men in marriage critique where he's just kind of where, Oh wow, these things hit every time and then be like, well, and this time it must've been a truly sincere statement of who it is. I, I think um, I think that it, again, yeah, it goes over to the overall bravado, the overall persona, certainly that he's trying to cast And this. Uh, actually, this is a great time to bring it up. So there's in the middle of this episode, a really long excerpt from a sermon about committing to the church 
and you needing to be part of the church. And even Mike Cosper in that clip says, you know, you might hear this and think not, none of this is inherently problematic, but it's problematic in the way this was worked out at, at Mars Hill. And so what I, my big problem with this episode, and I'm just, I'm, I'm not doing great radio. I'm supposed to save this. I know, just get right into it. Why not just start with is, it? Is that because the podcast I've now realized is not going topically, nor is it going chronologically, it's kind of trying to have it both ways. This sermon from long after this controversy is being brought back in as an as a as a dastardly example that Luke sermon is being brought in as a dastardly example of Driscoll's controlling persona. And so when we're having to make these, if we were just doing it chronologically, there might be things that you would have. Wow, this looks like it was he's like a perfect example of this is when he actually says, we just fired two people, we got to throw them off the bus. That's a perfect example where he in a pulpit is directly where you do have recorded him recorded directly speaking to the problem you're talking about. Right. But when we're weaving it together, my big concern is that people listening to this and Cosper also admits in this episode, the polity, uh, the church bylaws, that's way too complicated for us to go into right now. And so my concern becomes that because this is entertainment, it's yep. sneaking in. Hey, I get, you probably think you actually know what happened at Mars Hill. And actually it's, you don't. And that thinking, you know, what happened in these cases may be actually worse because you're not only not informed, you are now misinformed with how it's mm. edited and things together. And so that's yeah, my- So now we all think that we're experts about what went on because we've heard a couple of people talk about a couple of moments with some really dramatic music and sermon clips behind it. But in the end, we really still don't have a solid grasp because we weren't there. We didn't know the people we didn't, you know, there are people that are interviewed here that probably yeah, had a pretty good grasp of exactly. what was going on, but that's not necessarily something that we have, but it's going to make us feel like we do. Right. And especially because we are being moved to action. Yep. Right. We are, we are in, in that issue, right? If you, I think it would be a fine, I think, I think if we're going to compare it to things like serial, I think actually serial does a, a step-by-step walkthrough of the bylaws and the specific changes. Even if that feels pedantic, I think that's what closer to actual journalism probably requires. And yeah. given the popularity of this show, I actually think, I don't think that would have been like, I don't think that would have killed people in a produced way, presented well. Let's go to the second reason this clip gets dropped in here. So Mike Hosper is horrified to learn with how uh, Driscoll is using Nehemiah, that it's a, that Nehemiah is the, is the city within a city, how they're going to re, how they're going to build Mars Hill, that this is the, he's taking it for a plan, leadership principles. And I think all of our listeners who are familiar with seeker-driven leadership models are going to, would say with me, Driscoll using Nehemiah this way is essentially par for the course. Yep. And when I heard this originally, it was actually refreshing. Why? Because Driscoll at least was not cherry picking his way through. He he is saying, well, we got to find a way to apply the beating people part too. Right. And so he actually brings up the parts that most people want to shy away from within evangelicals. Right. I'm sure he turns it into a joke and he makes, you know, which is probably that's how you got to get through it for yeah. him, you know, like within the evangelical mold, right? Like we got to, oh man, we got to uh, try to hide from this still a little bit. And so we'll turn it into a kind of joke. Yeah. So let me, uh, let me just read one example. You, you could find this, uh, I believe in Purpose Driven Church. Rick Warren uses this. I, I mean, I think that this is this is so ubiquitous. I just it's everywhere. Give, I want to give you one example of how things like this get taught. So, um, for them to want to re, uh, people wanted to be involved in rebuilding the wall, but they had to have ownership in the project. And so here is um, just this study guide explaining how did Nehemiah build ownership in this ministry project, right? So this this training is describing. One of the big principles we can gather from Nehemiah is how to build, quote unquote, ownership in a ministry goal. He prayed. He knew exactly what needed to be done. He cast vision for the people. He told them that Jerusalem was the city of God and it would take hope, courage, and strength and faith to do it. 
they would have to lift up their heads and decide to live um, fully, even if they were under foreign occupation. They were not just building a wall. He encouraged them. He gave them responsibilities that they owned. He allowed them to work in areas that were meaningful to them. The people who worked at the sheep gate were there and it was for the sheep sacrifice. He allowed people to build in the portions that were near their house. So here's a suggested comment for the teacher is because people own the project, they gave themselves and their resources to it. So this is, <laughs> so, so I, I've heard Nehemiah. Here's the model, and, right. So Nehemiah is the model, right? He's, yeah, and, I, and you're making him kind of like a modern, like you take like modern leadership techniques and ideas and you say, look, we can read this back in and we can see that Nehemiah did all of these things. Nehemiah is a book that in many of the contexts I've been in, it's one of my least favorite books to hear anyone explain because of this. I've heard Nehemiah as the fundraiser. I've heard Nehemiah as the leadership model. I've heard Nehemiah as many of these things. And yeah, Nehemiah, believe- the, the high powered CEO, taking your right. business to the next level. <laughs> uh, I, I'm certain. And so again, so this is not defending Driscoll's use of Nehemiah, but I'm saying that when Cosper is like, and so he has cast himself as Nehemiah as, as the leader. I'm saying, yes, he did. And this is what everyone was doing. Pastor Michael, is there, is there something better for me in Nehemiah? Is, is there, is there anything better for me to take from Nehemiah? Yeah. So this is always the like weird thing when it comes to, you know, we've talked about the, you know, the idea of like, you're not David, right? You're the, mm-hmm. the very like common, like new Calvinist, um, you know, gospel centered type of idea that like you, you can only read uh, certain parts of the old Testament as typology. Yeah. And so I'm not going to defend uh, what, you know, Driscoll's doing or what a lot of, of people do in kind of the pop evangelical scene with Nehemiah, because it is, it is doing exactly what that kind of critique is against, right? It's, right. it's doing the thing where you take it and you say, well, now I'm going to be Nehemiah. And this is what it looks like for me to be Nehemiah. It is a kind of moralism. It is also like it, it does it when a leader takes on, uh, Hey, I'm like this. I'm like Moses. I'm like David. I'm like Nehemiah. Um, I do think that that can be really dangerous. I think that, you know, uh, that that can lead to some serious problems. But Nehemiah is a great book about the faithfulness of God, about uh, God working through someone like Nehemiah in order to bring restoration to his city, just as he had promised. Um, like as a, as a book within the, the scope of redemptive history, it's, it's a beautiful uh, book about the, God answering his promises, uh, but not in a way that maybe in, in modern days we would want, where when we want God to answer his promises, we want it to be like, all right, you know, like, he snaps his fingers and it's done and, and everything's good and everything's happy. Um, it's difficult. It takes hard work. It's, it's uh, you know, filled with conflict and there are enemies involved and, and there's, there's all kinds of danger. And yet it's even in the midst of that, that God shows his faithfulness. And so, so there's a lot of good um, to be uh, gotten out of Nehemiah. And I don't think that it's necessarily wrong to see um, within Nehemiah, this kind of picture of, of this kind of rebuilding uh, that happens and then be able to say, hey, in an kind of as an analogy, this might be something that, you know, needs to be done. Sometimes the walls have fallen down. You could say that right now about kind of the evangelical church more broadly, uh, like the, the walls have fallen down. We have uh, doctrinally become uh, in a bad way. Uh, the, there's, there are a lot of problems and the, you know, the, you know, quote unquote walls of the city, you could say, really should be rebuilt in a certain way. The problem comes then when like one guy's like, well, I'm the Nehemiah that's going to do it. You know, like I'm, I'm the guy that you need to trust to help fix whatever the problem is. And it's important to know that like anytime you use that way of thinking, it's, it is analogical. It is not saying that this is what the text of scripture is about. So when, when you're preaching it, you don't preach, here is the analogy. You preach, this is what the scripture says. This is what it teaches. Um, and, you know, then maybe you can uh, apply it more broadly. But anyway, I, I think that it, it is, uh, it, it shows kind of some of those problematic trends and it shows maybe why the, the you're not David line of thinking was so impactful for many of us and important because it did return 
to maybe a more Christocentric reading of the text. Right. Right. You know, I think that there's, I don't think, you know, I, I, again, is Nehemiah about the importance of rebuilding the people of God, the importance of the ordinary people of God, the importance of the word of God, even, and there are certainly things about leaders in God's kingdom, right? I think we are approaching things like discipline probably at the end of Nehemiah. And so obviously the, the, the problem with how this version of Nehemiah is getting used is, is that it is even very specifically, if there are, if there is some analogy between a pastor and Nehemiah, it's obviously not one for one, but two, it's shocking to learn that in, you know, whatever BC that Nehemiah's leadership matched what a CEO style (laughs) leadership in the year 2020 is like, right? Like that's, what's insane, right? (laughs) Or that Nehemiah had concerns about fundraising, like most people in ministry today, right? That those are the things that are crazy, you know, these, or that Nehemiah would have Nehemiah ever described himself as a vision casting leader. You know, like these are the things that are, that are obviously crazy. Yeah, it's weird. You're trying to shoehorn things into the text at this point. I do, uh, you know, I like that Driscoll, you know, can say, hey, this is a guy with his church. It's very covenantal, thinking of Israel as the church. Um, The problem, though, is when you have such a like, you know, hey, Mars Hill Church is the church. Right. You know, like that was very much the model. And that's the model of a lot of like big, big uh, mega church evangelicalism is like, this is the church. And when you're the church and you're reading about the church in Nehemiah, then actually like Driscoll would be the Nehemiah in a sense, right? right? Like that's, that's how you can get there. Um, But it starts with that kind of wonky ecclesiology from the beginning. Well, let's get further into this uh, stuff about ecclesiology with our next clip. Those changes. But as you can imagine, you walk into a room like that outnumbered with three of the executive elders and a campus pastor waiting for you and the temperature changes immediately and that is the meeting where bent meyer and i were fired on the spot just a quick pause there so this ecclesiology involved elders fired on the spot someone called executive elders and campus pastors and whoever mark (laughs) driscoll is so just just a quick note that that's apparently it's it's a real mess at this point (laughs) yeah at the time was very different. This is Paul Petrie again. He's describing the era around 2001 when he arrived at the church. Mark would always say, you know, all of the elders here have one vote. And at that time, there were not that many elders. Uh, let's see, there was Leif Moy, there was Mike Gunn, there was Bent Meyer. And Mark made it very clear from the pulpit that everybody here is equal in authority. So. If they wanted to get rid of me, they could. You know, I never heard a pastor actually say that. And so even though he was sort of brash, if you will, he had these guys around him that, you know, could hold him accountable. And so we we felt safe. Pastor Michael, you can tell me if this is different. This is quite honestly the church ecclesiology I learned from Driscoll when I would listen to him. Every, all elders, one vote. And you know what? They could all fire me if they felt like it. I'm one elder among many, and we all have one vote, and they could fire me. Driscoll repeated that over and over. Now, granted, with what's going to play out, that's that may not be exactly how it worked out. But I think that this is basically uh, what we got from Driscoll as his, his understanding of of church government, at least that he proclaimed was. Yeah, it was the it was the spoken ecclesiology. And obviously in these kinds of circumstances, like the like the reality of like a, a non-denominational church that's being started up, like it's it's messy, right? Like there is no like written down here. This is what it's like. Um, and a lot of times it's in a lot of flux. So but even if you're hearing that over and over again, that that would be the assumption, right? This is where we kind of stand. There's just one guy, one vote on this one kind of level. And, and this is actually the, um, this is the kind of ecclesiology hearing this is what prepared me for Presbyterianism, uh, that there was a sense where there was elder rule, because as most congregational churches, there are systems of government that are 
the staff of the church have government, the elders run the building or the deacons run the building and the people vote on, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, you begin to realize, at least I did reading the scriptures that the idea of elders having charge of the church seemed a lot more biblical to me. Yeah, absolutely. It just, I mean, it seems straightforward, right? You read Mm -hmm. the new Testament and you have uh, elders being appointed in every church so that they can shepherd the church so that they can govern the church so that they can be overseers, right? They can rule over the church. They have to rule over their own households well to be approved, to be elders. Uh, like it says in second Timothy three, like there's so many things that you, you read and uh, they're just on their face. You come away with the understanding that, okay, the leaders of Christ church are mm-hmm. elders. That's, that's who leads his church. So, Pastor Michael, a lot of churches got a taste of Reformed theology and moved towards a model of government that reflected this, one elder, one vote. Uh, this is also what Acts 29 is known for. Pastor Michael, did they arrive at biblical ecclesiology, or are they still missing some parts? We might compare some things later to Presbyterianism, but have they gotten Presbyterian at, Presbyterianism at its heart, or are they, uh, is this still, uh, is, this, is this too reductive? Would you feel comfortable? I should. I'll ask it this way: Would you feel comfortable describing Presbyterian government of the church this way? Um, n- no, and that's because, like, if if all it is is one elder, one vote on a local level, right? There, there is no accountability outside of this one local church. Um, I think this is actually really problematic. I think that you see that. I mean, the the reality is that in Scripture you have. Uh, you know, a kind of, I, I don't know that you could argue, you know, one vote per elder. It's just assumed. I mean, I think you can read that very, like, I think you can get there clearly from the New Testament. There's nowhere where it's like, yep. And when you're, you know, in your session meeting, uh, each elder gets one vote when you're, you know, making decisions. It doesn't say that outright, but as we kind of, you know, uh, translate what the scripture does say into more kind of judicial terms, when we're talking about what it looks like when you actually meet, there's no like pragmatic, Hey, when you meet together, these are the steps, right? You open in prayer, you do this. There's, it, it's just not quite like that in the New Testament. Uh, yeah. But I think that what we can get implicitly becomes the, the parity of elders, right? Mm. So there are elders that rule the church. There is no like, there's one guy who's above the other. There's no, you know, like bishops and elders. This is a, an interchangeable thing. Titus uses both words to describe the same office. Um, you know, we, uh, yeah. presbyters and and uh bishops are the same so it, uh, same it thing does, sorry so it does communicate that one truth about presbyterianism exactly presbyterianism yes. well that just because you and the senior pastor teach at in front of the church and the other elders do not take that role as often publicly in the service it doesn't mean you have a higher level of authority in the church than they do Right. But what do you have also in the New Testament, as well as in the Old Testament, when we start to see uh, kind of the the beginnings of of what, you know, governing God's people looks like Um, there is uh, there are graded courts. Right. Mm. I mean, there there are different um, levels of of church. You see this, for instance, in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council, you see that you have elders from uh, all kinds of different churches meeting together with the apostles and making decisions that are then going to uh, affect every church, right? So they, that have authority over every church. And so what you see is that there's there's all these different levels of accountability. You also have uh, the congregation involved in this, right? So that the congregation in Acts is bringing forward leaders um, for the apostles to ordain. And so- Yes, yes. And I actually think you and I aren't congregationalists, but historically Baptists have been, that the- yep role of the voting people, they have a lot of say. And yeah. we might say that we don't see that. But when you say, hey, these w- this group of men with one vote each having control, the Baptists used to control for that with a lot of power in the congregation. Yes. And in all of these mega churches that talk about the importance of elders, the people probably don't even have as much power as they would in a local Presbyterian congregation. So this is, uh, I think, really the we're where the problems really arise is this is similar to what we've talked about when it comes to like Calvinism and how Calvinism was defined down to, Hey, here are these five points you have to believe in, but everything else outside of that, you can just, you know, kind of pick and choose. It doesn't have to be uh, something that comes within a, a fuller doctrinal system. 
It's just something that you can add on to what you're already doing. And all of a sudden you have these kind of cage stage Calvinists talking about how, well, we don't have, you know, uh, a free choice in anything. And we're just like automatons just doing whatever God says. And it's like, well, wait a minute. The only reason you think that is because you've taken these ideas out of their context, right? Out of what, where, where they should be. So one elder, one vote, you know, this is a really like uh, the, the parody of elders is a very important idea. However, the Bible also speaks to the importance of accountability on multiple different levels. And this is where I actually think that uh, modern day, there are many who have gone to this model of what they call elder-led churches. And the danger has been that you have now um, taken any authority in the church and put it in the hands of usually like two or three people. Whereas in a congregational model, though I don't think it's necessarily the right model, you do have different levels of accountability that are possible anyway. It maybe doesn't always work out that way, especially as you start to become a large congregation. <laughs> Obviously, you can't just pragmatically. I think you run into some of these things. And actually, one of the things that I think the Marcel story shows us is that um, when like the, the pragmatics of how to get things done and uh, the ecclesiology of like a parody of elders does not always go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The having, having a strong understanding of like accountability of, of, you know, of authority that is distributed is not localized in one person. Um, even on a local level in with Mars Hill, you see that as things grow and as decisions need to be made much faster and quicker and, and all of this, the, the pragmatic argument ends up winning out uh, to the actual argument of, hey, we thought that the you know biblical way was one elder, one vote. And now all of a sudden we're changing that. Why? Well, it's ultimately because we need to be able to get stuff done. Yeah. And I think our next clip discusses this kind of leadership. This pastor. Uh, the elders and the pastors here are a team mutually submissive. I've got my own pastor on staff, Pastor Leaf. My wife and I submit to him. I have accountability with him. I'm one guy who votes with the other guys. This is not a dictatorship. The senior pastor is Jesus. We're a functional, working, healthy, mutually submissive team. So I'm not saying I'm the spiritual leader. You do what I say. I think that's very abusive when one person alone is the spiritual leader. When it was first established, Mars Hill's governance model was what's often referred to as elder-led or elder-ruled. This meant that all of the ultimate responsibility for the church was vested in the elders or pastors. In this model, those words are usually used interchangeably. They determine the policy, budgets, doctrinal statements, ministry philosophy, you name it. Mars Hill wasn't tied to a denomination, of course, so there was no external authority beyond the church. It boiled down, as Mark said, to one elder, one vote. And that model is fairly common among reform-minded Baptistic churches. John MacArthur advocates for it, as does Wayne Grudem, Alexander Strock, and Gene Getz. And if you were church planning in the early 2000s, one of the most vocal advocates for this model was actually Mark Driscoll. So, Pastor Michael, there's where Mike Cosper describes the stated ecclesiology of Mars Hill, and that it was common, like we've discussed. We actually are going to interview a Reformed Baptist, and they are going to tell us if what Mike Cosper just explained as Mars Hill's um, polity is actually a good reflection of Reformed Baptist polity. So I guess we'll find out when we interview him later today. Pastor Michael, how does this polity compare to what you just described? Does it, is it, what is it missing? What is, what does Driscoll explain right? What does, and Cosper adds some context to help you understand what he's saying. Yeah, so I, I guess, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to be able to remember every little detail of what he just said, um, because, I mean, let's be honest, this is, I mean, it's a little bit of a mess, right? I mean, I, right. I, I'm not going to be able to keep track of it all. Um, it, there is a kind of similarity in that what he's describing is you're trying to find a way to say, hey, all the leaders here are equal. Like, we might have different gifts, we might, you know, work in different areas, but we all ultimately are, you know, submitting to one another in some way. There is no one guy. And even the idea that like Christ is the head of the church. This is one of the, you know, kind of foundational principles of uh, Presbyterian church government, for instance, it should be the foundational principle for all ecclesiology that uh, the only, you know, king and head of the church is Jesus Christ himself. 
And so, um, you know, when we look back, for instance, then at the Old Testament, we have guys like Moses. We don't say, well, how am I like Moses? We say, well, no, like, you know, uh, Christ is the head. He is the, the one who has led us out of Egypt. He is the one who has established us as his people. Um, there, there are, you know, uh, unless you're a Calvary Chapel church, and then you have the Moses model of leadership, which they advocate for. This churches. is a real thing. Um, if you pick up, I read, uh, uh, oh man, uh, who rules the church, which is one of the Zondervan, like, you know, four or five view books where they give you these different views and, and uh, Elroy Taylor does a, a, a great job defending Presbyterianism in it. But somebody, I can't remember who it was, uh, but I, some Southern Baptist defends the idea of basically a Moses-led kind of like, you know, uh, ecclesiology, that this is what it should be like. Um, this is what we see in the Bible is one man kind of, you know, uh, takes the reins and, and uh, goes for it. So Anyway, um, so what he's describing in part sounds okay, right? What it sounds to me like is it sounds to me like somebody who's in just a typical non-denominational church that doesn't really have a stated ecclesiology, finding what the Bible says about elder rule and trying to move in that direction, like trying to make things like that. Yes. However, then there's like some of the weird stuff, like when he says like, well, my wife and I, we submit to this pastor. That gets a little bit weird. Like, what does that mean? I don't even know. Um, And obviously what we find out is that it's simply just not, it is not true in the end that this was uh, this kind of a relationship, you know, that we're, we're all on the same, like we're all together in this and we'll all, and in the end submit to one another. Uh, So in, this is one of the reasons that having graded courts of authority that can bring some outside accountability in, this is one of the reasons it's important is because when you say, yeah, we're all going to submit to each other, and then you don't, what happens? Right. Well, there's not, there's no recourse. It, it, there is at, nothing that can be done. At Mars Hill, the person considered most essential to carry on their goals wins, which yep. is Mark Driscoll. Yeah. Pastor Michael, before we, before I comment on this clip, um, can you tell our audience what you mean when you say graded courts? I'm just going to try and help demystify yeah, some Presbyterian uh, so- lingo. Yeah, all I mean is that there, there, when you have um, a local church and the elders of a local church, um, there's also going to be courts of authority above that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not in such a way that it takes away the authority of that local church, um, but that does have authority in some way above that church. So, um, for instance, within uh, Presbyterian polity, you have the presbytery which is a certain geographic region, uh, geographical region that, you know, all of the churches within this region, the elders are members of this presbytery um, and, you know, have some vote or authority within this presbytery. But usually the locus of authority within Presbyterianism is in the presbytery itself. So, you know, uh, a presbytery is the body of the church that, for instance, ordains somebody. Um, who, you know, starts up a new church. It's not that a local church is not involved in that. It's that there's outside authority that also takes part in making that decision. Again, basing this in part off of what we see in the New Testament itself, think about the various churches that sent elders to gather together in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Um, It's not to say that the Council of Jerusalem was in some way trying to take away the authority of these small local churches, but they were saying there are some things that we need to decide for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. For, for the whole of the church. And that's what we're doing here. And so they gather together, they make a decision. And that is something that all of the churches then submit to ultimately. These wild Presbyterians always telling me these things are in the Bible. That <laughs> um, I think the other, the other evidence for this, that for me well, was perhaps one of the more convincing things is look at how the word church is used across the New Testament. Yeah. Paul writes to a specific group of people in a specific city and calls them a church. Yep. He writes to the church in Galatia. And we know that that was apparently multiple bodies, yep. right? The church is also described universally. And so that there are, there is a sense um, of the, of the church being used this way. There are practices. And so I do think a great restless shirt, you know, I know people have claimed theology matters, these kinds of things. We should claim ecclesiology matters and start, uh, mint in those suckers. Cause I think those Man, would hey, sell. if you are out there and you make t-shirts, yes. Email us. We, we just, we don't have time we, to do this stuff. We need, we need a business partner. We know there are people who would buy shirts if we made them. So if you, if you can do this, we're here for you. Help so, us out. 
now that we're done with that pr- plug, I think the one thing you hear when you hear Driscoll describe this ecclesiology, I agree. I agree that it has holes. I don't know if it reflects Reformed Baptist polity in its traditional sense. That's why we're going to interview someone about it. Um, I think, though, it does reveal that his ecclesiology was probably better than his character. I think with what he is describing in these clips is it at least sounds like an attempt to have what would be um, at least a reasonable form of church government, right? There are faithful churches that have congregational models of government. The Lutheran churches with their more hierarchical models of church government, there are things we differ with them on. But these but there is a reason these kinds of three strains of church government, Presbyterianism, a hierarchical, or we call Episcopal, or a congregational, there are a reason these have persisted throughout time. Because they have merits, because there is precedent for them and how they work. And I agree that, again, when all of us, like we do everything today, say, well, let's pick up our Bibles and see what with what we come up with today. I think this is what he's saying actually would reflect an a reasonable sincere attempt to do that and i think also that's why your us coming together to see what we can reasonably sincerely come up with today fresh is also not not sufficient because i'm one person you're one person even if you're the best even if you're wayne grudem as they described as an advocate (laughs) for this your wisdom does not exceed that of the hundreds and of Christ, hundreds of generations of Christians who've come before you. Um, and I think his character is worse than that. And I think that's what we see. And so here's my warning to my Presbyterian friends listening, because, you know, the Presbyterians listening to you, Pastor Michael, they're just rattling their Presby cages, screeching out <laughs> graded courts, parody, right? Um, you know, all of these things. But here's what I believe sometimes Presbyterians overpromise. I think Presbyterians look at Mars Hill and go, well, this was obviously a polity problem. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think at its root, this was a character problem. This was a man in need of discipline. This was a man in need of of correction, not of better bylaws, because I don't think that would have fixed it. And so I think, again, there, there are obvious polity problems. We're discussing it. But I think when Presbyterians come up, you know, and look at these things and go, wow, you know, you wouldn't have had that problem with that abusive pastor had you, you know, had Presbyterianism. There are there are things that are true about that, but you can't fix spiritual problems with polity. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, there there are um, helpful guides. Um, there are, you know, this is this is uh, like many other habits that we can, uh, you know, in our personal lives establish. Um, there, there are good practices and habits that are good, that are righteous, um, that are, uh, you know, important, um, and they can, um, for instance, help you uh, or keep you from various kinds of temptation, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, you know, setting a kind of hedge in a sense around temptation. Um, so adding uh, layers of accountability to what you're doing can be of great benefit. And I do believe it's biblical, right? In, in this particular way that we're talking about. However, what you're saying is right. And even the very fact that we, you just said, um, you know, you have very faithful congregational churches um, and pastors in congregational settings. You have faithful pastors in these settings, right? The one elder, one vote settings. Um, you have faithful, faithful Lutherans and faithful, uh, you know, uh, Anglicans and, and so on and so forth. You can, you can have faithfulness even in systems that are not quite right. Um, so that's right. I, I think that that's helpful. Um, there should not be any kind of, of utopian dreams right. when it comes to something like Presbyterianism or any other kind of church polity. Charles Hodge, he was a faithful Presbyterian, even though he advocated church boards for minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all right. And so we skipped over the entire section of this, of this Luke sermon, as I mentioned, and we are actually going to skip over a lot of the rest of this podcast. So part two picks up after this little clip that I played, and it starts off with of why the episode is called the state of emergency, that in a state of emergency, you can justify anything, right? And so it begins, part two kicks off with analogies about Nazi takeovers, 
fascist takeovers and Soviet takeovers. So if we're playing by Godwin's law, which as you as our listeners probably know, um, the first one to bring up Nazis in an argument loses. Uh, Christianity Today lost the argument with Mark Driscoll because, I mean, the amount of times we do Nazi analogies in these episodes is is shocking. Like it is wild, try, right? They didn't try to sneak it in one time. It's, it's felt like half the episodes. <laughs> and so then we get into the uh, the the I would call it kind of the the meat of it is, which is this question they have of the the real struggle all church planters have to face is this the complexity of of balancing accountability and and church structures with the practical needs of reaching people um and i have driscoll's book i thought i had it on kindle i think they probably deleted it his book reformation rev it's too bad that has i hope i can get another cop i hope what I is this his where he uh it's his self-written autobiography really and it like lays out like his principles of leadership and church government and of course at the time i thought this may be the this greatest <laughs> autobiography i've ever read this is who i have to be yeah but in it he describes this like problem like hey to get your church over a hundred you can't be friends with everyone you and like and so he's describing there are certain uh ceilings that a certain structure of ministry and government can only take you which they allude to in the episode i was hoping to provide the full quotes but i think he deleted it because it's probably now viewed as a bit of an embarrassment um, (laughs) given what happened and so what we see is um executive elders who can make decisions on the fly without a full vote get added for this level of efficiency then we find out they need to make the board of directors over these elders because for um, um, efficiency and this guy, Jamie, there's your Mun- church boards, Hodge. There. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> is- then we have right. Jamie Munson's name gets tossed around a lot. The fact that he is not interviewed and the fact that he is like, essentially it appears to be the mind behind this restructuring, right? It's really too bad that, he, you know, like at the end, they, pl- they play a little like, five sentence like i apologize for the yeah, people he said that he this... wouldn't be interviewed right it's right and says something like i i feel bad about everything that went down or you know something but it was it's just a short quick apology it would be nice to have more right um and so i think that the there you know so we get this so pastor michael i think this is a i think this is a dichotomy a lot of people feel and even to a degree what is what ironically was brought up in our church board episode this the need to reach people now not on any level right the, yeah. the, we're in two worlds of con uh yeah, of right. conversation but in ch- church government and yeah. i think this is again probably an example where this isn't reformed right the the true reformed principle is we obey what the scriptures tell us to do right and because right they're not in a debate of circumstance they're like this is this is why it's a different conversation hodge was saying this is a this is a thing that is indifferent you are trying to tell me what i have to do in a circumstance driscoll mars hill is saying we can organize the church in any way we see fit for the sake of our overall goals for the sake right? of you even hear that by the way when he's uh when he was speaking earlier when we played the clip where he says something like you know, uh, the most important thing uh, is not the gathered worship, but it's the scattered. the scattered worship where people are out being missionaries so that what when they come back together, that's what we're celebrating is what they've done out on their own as missionaries. And so um, you hear that even a little bit there, right, where like the priority is bringing people in. That's yes. the number one priority. And as much as like, I want to say that there is some like, like there there is a part of me that I'm like, oh, I want that. Like I, that sounds almost right. You know, like it, I hope that there's this passion and desire for people to know Christ. Um, the reality is that, I mean, what is the purpose of evangelism? It's, you know, my John Piper guys out there, you got to know this, right? What's, I mean, this is, it's all about worship, right? Right. This is, this is why uh, there is evangelism. This is why there is missions. Uh, it's because people need to worship the one true God that's worthy of worship. And so um, even that you hear that there's this kind of uh, changing of what the priorities actually should be. 
in a healthy way. And what do you see as that, you know, goes on? Well, in the end, you have to be more pragmatic then, right? Pragmatism has to be the priority because it allows for more people to come in the doors. And and I think this is, again, where this episode, I think, again, falters is, right? They seem to be like perplexed at how anyone could think that they were doing this all for the gospel. I think when it's all about a pragmatic approach, I don't find that, I don't find it hard to believe that you could have either be deluded or literally believe this was all for the sake of the gospel. This is, that's normal, right? I yes. mean, that, that is just normal today is that like whatever we do, as long as it's for outreach, as long as it's for more people hearing about Jesus, it's okay. Right. And I actually have some kind of tough news when I, after I heard the process of how the bylaws were changed that put this board of directors above everything. And, and even the guys they're interviewing, the, the tough news is, the elders did of this church vote for it. Yeah, they voted one, for it. One elder, one, one vote. <laughs> one elder, one vote. This church, and if you and if and if at some point this church stopped being a true church, the elders of the church voted itself out of existence. Hmm. And that's, I mean, it's tough. And you know, it's again, it's it was literally on the altar of this. We need more people to meet people to 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 become Christians. I will vote my authority and probably my responsibility out of existence. Yeah. And, and so we get into this um, discussion of how these pastors were treated. Um, and it, it's obviously very poorly. And then, so it, it we end uh, with two issues, one of them being spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse is what you call it when someone leverages issues of eternal significance for power, including the power to crush dissent. It's because people are invested in their spirituality so deeply that they're susceptible to the manipulations of someone who knows how to traffic in the language and emotions of religion and religious experience. Christians, as a rule, are eager for more people to meet Jesus, and it's in the nature of a church like Mars Hill to prioritize that over everything else. This is the state of emergency. It's equating the growing numbers with the expanding kingdom of God, the need to make more room, the need to keep moving the mission forward. So maybe due process isn't necessary. Maybe information gets siloed or misrepresented. Maybe there's a few dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. Maybe the elders need to relinquish their authority. But when the growth of the church is made one and the same with the expansion of the kingdom of God, who wants to stand in its way? Don't you care about lost people? That same year, Leif Moy would be removed from his role as the campus pastor at the Ballard campus and demoted to part-time work. There was controversy around all of this too, but Leaf came back and took the responsibility on himself and he was reinstated as an elder. He ran into legal troubles in 2008 and was disqualified then and removed from leadership. In the midst of all of this transition, Mars Hill also canceled everyone's membership, forcing them to start from scratch, attend membership classes anew, and recommit to a revised member's covenant. Bent Meyer and his family left during this time, as did Wendy and Andy Alsop. In all, almost a thousand people would leave, but it didn't hinder the church's growth, not hardly. Like after it all happened, you know, the church just like took off on this growth boom. You know, I mean, they went from, I don't know what it was, somewhere between four and 6,000 to 15,000, like boom. Pastor Michael, we get into the discussion, which is very popular today of spiritual abuse. So leveraging someone's eternal concerns for power. And they're doing this in the case of these two elders who were fired. And then their families were told that they could not be approached. Now, again, the, the Presbyterian thing is, well, where's your book of discipline? Because if one member of a family is under discipline, that doesn't mean the whole family is thrown out. In fact, that family probably needs more. Even if this past, even if that elder was in blatant rebellious sin, it would not require if their family desired to remain with the church, right? They don't get to, you don't get to lump them in necessarily. Right. But Pastor Michael, what is spiritual abuse? So I actually think, so, you know, they, they bring this up. I do think that uh, this is a pressing concern today Mm -hmm. um, in that we live in a tremendously like abusive culture, um, meaning like, we are, we are manipulators. We are 
constantly in these power struggles, trying to win out over each other. We, we are totalitarians at heart, right? We want to force other people to do what we want them to do. Um, this is just, th this seems to me um, a very common uh, sin among us as a people, right? And I'm speaking obviously here in America. Uh, I don't know if that's true everywhere, um, but in my experience, I think that this is the case. And so spiritual abuse, uh, you know, in this way, at least spoken of in this way, would be using uh, the things of God or using the, you know, the, uh, the, the reality as they said that somebody, you know, holds these things very dearly against them in some way to, to force them into doing something that maybe they would not uh, otherwise uh, be willing to do or force them to do something that is, is wrong in some way. Um, and my, you know, I, and I think, I, I really do think this is real. I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, somewhat recently when everything came out about Ravi Zacharias and how he right. was, he was engaged in all kinds of sexual impropriety. Now, this was an allegation. I can't tell you if it was for sure true, but one of the allegations was that it wasn't uncommon for him to say things like, you know, like I'm a very big and like important man. Like, you know, I do so many good things for God. Don't you think that God would want you to help me out right. and use that to procure sexual favors in some way. Right. So that kind of thing, right. Like that is like using, uh, using, either your status, uh, within, you know, uh, the church or using the things of God in some way in order to, uh, abuse somebody else. I would call that spiritual abuse. Um, now my concern sometimes when the term spiritual abuse is thrown around is that, uh, and I, I think this happens because, um, because so many people have been abused in various ways, not just spiritually, but physically and sexually. And like, there, there are so many people that are abused in our society that uh, you read abuse into everything. Mm. Um, so you become more sensitive to uh, what you think might be abuse, right? So it's, it's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, it's a reaction to protect yourself that is understandable um, but also I think sometimes then comes out in accusing everybody and everything of abuse, even where it isn't or, or seeing abuse, even where it isn't. And my concern with a lot of times when, when the term spiritual abuse is used is that it can turn into, Hey, if you have ever told somebody you are in sin and you have to repent, like yes. you need to repent. If you are a Christian, here is what God says about this. And you need to repent of this sin. Mm -hmm. Um, that is going to be called spiritual abuse by some right. people. Um, and so it becomes this thing where it's like, well, you can't, you can't speak authoritatively in any right. way. And I, that can't be true for ministers of the word of God. And I, so, um, so yeah. I don't like, my concern is always that it will go in that direction. Um, <laughs> in this case, when you have, you know, somebody who is, you know, uh, a megalomaniac and he's using the scripture to prop himself up and to condemn other people. And like, that is clearly right a case where I would say there is spiritual abuse involved and other yes. kinds of abuse, probably too. Definitely the abuse of power and authority. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I agree with your overall take. I think Mike Cosper's definition of spiritual abuse, that a spiritual belief is used to take authority. That is a, for me, a very scary definition. That's dangerous. Yeah. That's a because, dangerous loose because, way to define because it. quite frankly, because of spiritual realities, Pastor Michael does have that authority over me. And there are, as we've talked about, a court of presbyters in Wisconsin who, because of spiritual realities, has authority over him, right? And so I think part of the, the scariness of how this episode comes out is I think a lot of these critiques only make sense in our incredibly egalitarian days where yeah. we hate all authority, where it's all questionable. I actually just went up, I went online and to a one of the abuse hotlines websites and found a definition of spiritual abuse that I actually think is a lot more helpful because I agree with pastor Michael that abuse in our day is common and is, and many people are abused. And obviously we could even say this, if whether or not I'm super comfortable describing what Pat, what Driscoll did in this case as spiritual abuse, you can be harmed you can be truly harmed by something that has a different definition than ab abuse. Yeah. Right. You can have unbiblical, unhealthy church practices that hurt people. That isn't necessarily abuse. Um, right. Now, if you just want to use the word abuse to say any harm to any person, that's fine. But typically when we use abuse, we're using it and actually it tends to be a 
legal, a legal framework, right? The American mind, at least, has the term abuse in a legal framework um, and rightly um, is usually associated with some form of physical abuse. Um, now, that, 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 that isn't to say there, aren't, there isn't abuse beyond that. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that because the term has a lot of loaded language, I would want to be careful to say it because in, in this case, when, well, I go to an elder led church where they tell me there are things they tell me I have to do now they could, again, we use it more colloquially when we say they could abuse that authority. They could tell you to do things. They don't have the authority to tell you. Um, but here's a, just so, sorry, that's all rambling. Um, I just think it's an important subject that I think it was, uh, I think the definition offered wasn't the best, even if it does somewhat fit. And I think it has come up a lot in this podcast too, right? Does. So, so it's I mean, clearly they, one of the things that Christianity today is trying to move in a direction of trying to like locate where is the abuse and where is that still happening? Yes. And so for a person listening to our podcast, he, I would say, please find help immediately. If this next definition is true of you, you are being truly spiritually abused. It's the use of religious texts or beliefs to minimize or rationalize abusive behaviors like physical abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. I think that, I think it's not just religious beliefs that hurt you or put someone above you um, or, or that, or religious beliefs or authority structures that cause problems, but it's, they are, they are using a spiritual belief to rationalize something we would categorize as belief abuse right so um if your child's there just plug theirs for one second marital rape on the basis that the husband is the head of the wife is a both physical and sexual abuse but that's spiritual abuse too because they are rationalizing an evil action because of some um practice right you could you could abuse someone by saying no matter how sinful how, if the pastor is caught in a scandal like Ravi Zacharias, right? What he was doing, a classic example of spiritual abuse, right? I think uh, we get the kinds of language of touch not the Lord's anointed. No matter how bad they are, there must be the man of God. So we've got to, we can't do anything. And so I do think it's an issue. I think, I think if you were at Mars Hill, there, one thing we heard at the end of this clip that should have told you something is wrong that something is wrong with the church as the church when they canceled everyone's membership. Yeah. What does that even mean? You know, again, like what, you know, what, what is going on when, when that kind of language is, you know, a, an elder is fired right. or like your membership is canceled. What, like, is this a magazine subscription? Yes, like what's exactly. going on? Exactly. And I think actually Driscoll is, this is like the first example of the social compact being broken, right? In, in our COVID times, it's very common to, for people to play clips of leaders not following the rules that they've set for people, whether it be quarantine or travel or whatever, right? This is, this is that, this is that, this is that kind of social compact was broken. You are, the idea that you can cancel church membership is just, is, is insane to me because I'm a church member because I'm a member of the body of Christ and have made certain vows and so if my church member is canceled, don't worry. It's not, we're not kicking you out. You're not under discipline. It's just, you have to, we've, we've just, we've altered the deal. Pray. Right. We've I changed don't what it means to be a member. And you have to go back through this membership class and what? Yeah. <laughs> I've that, never even heard of anything like that. You know, it's just so wild. And I think that is the sign. If you were at Mars Hill, like if you were, if you were a member there, a lot of these issues I think would have been hard to parse who's right, who's wrong. Right. Yeah. With right. All the and you're sides. not, you're not there behind the scenes. You're not exactly. seeing it all. Like you're like, I don't really know what's going on, but the moment they canceled and it, and it sounds like a lot of people left at that moment. Yep. And of course the, the problem is that, well, then a lot more people came. I don't know how to, because you may not know that. I don't know how to help that. But if there was, if there were two moments that if the church was leaving the realm of a, of a, of a biblical church. It was the moment where the elders voted away all their authority or, and the, the obvious one to everyone would have been when their membership was canceled. Yeah. 
So yeah, ecclesiology matters. <laughs> ecclesiology matters because at some point you aren't a true church without any ecclesiology. Yeah. At some point you are not, you do not have the biblical means of grace, discipline, and, and preaching of the word. And so I think there's important lessons here. I think there are important cautions here. Pastor Michael, do you have anything you want to, you want to take us home on? Uh, no, I mean, to- I think everything, I mean, we've, we've gone around a lot of different things and we've probably gone on a bit long, but, but this really is why we think this matters. It matters for accountability sake. It matters because this is what uh, it, you know, God's word has told us. This is why um, pragmatics are not kind of the final arbiter of what you do in the church, because this is the kind of place that you can end up. It's not to say every time you're going to end up here. God is gracious and he often, you know, preserves us and protects us and and takes care of his people, even through very like messy situations um, with, with various kinds of uh, messed up ecclesiologies. But the reason, or one of the reasons uh, that we want to adhere to the word of God is because it is, it is the way that he wants us to live. And there is blessing with that, right? I mean, it comes with uh, actual blessing to, um, follow God in, in what he has commanded us. So, so in the end, ecclesiology matters. Uh, and we will find out if this is what all reformed Baptists are doing out there, uh, a little bit later next time, <laughs> next time on restless. Well, thanks for listening, uh, to restless. I am your Nehemiah of the podcast podcasting with our Ezra, the scribe. <laughs> Is that what leading we would be? That'd be hey, leading the fits, rebuilding of the YRR. We're rebuilding the walls. We are uh, bringing the people back into covenant with God. <laughs> if you're an incredibly wealthy king like Cyrus, we'd like to call on you right now to bless the work that, of restless. That's right. Sow a seed. Sow a seed. And there's no telling what you will receive back. The rest, because Restless isn't a church, we definitely have a, a Nehemiah Ezra model of leadership on the show. <laughs> Um, so thanks for listening rate and review the show as we said on spotify right now go on spotify rate and review the show and because we're about to hit a hundred thousand uh i need to start posting this every day tell us what to do at a hundred thousand give us questions to answer give us uh videos to watch you gotta uh, say it quick it's about to happen we're really it's about close. to happen all right we need, your, we need your help we're running out of ideas here help all right we'll talk to y'all later this is the only church you've ever really known. But we have a window of opportunity that God has opened up for us to, to see the kind of grace that one day they write a book about. Oh, sorry. This was just me putting in a 10 second clip to spike the football and say, well, they did make a podcast about it. <laughs> they did. And there's been books written about it. What? <laughs>